0: Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium Podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and legal ops thought leaders from across the ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarron. I'm on the board of directors at Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. This year on Clock Talk, we're breaking down a clock core per month with an industry expert. On this episode, I sit down with Jason Barnwell, leads digital transformation and serves as associate general counsel at microsoft jason is also a former board member of clock and has vast experience in the field of legal operations and technology and this month's core is business intelligence or bi jason and i go in depth discussing the journey of BI, its application in legal tech, and how to navigate that journey, whether you're just starting out in your legal department or you're in a more advanced legal op shop. Jason and I each share insights and stories from our respective BI journeys inside the legal department. We also get into the utility of dashboards, sharing practical tips, including starting simple, answering a question to be asked, and we touch on some of those common pitfalls in trying to dashboard too much. I felt like I was in Clock Core University on this one. Hope you learn as much as I did. Enjoy the episode. Jason Barnwell, you made it. Leaves the clock board once and I get you back in 12 days to talk and hang out on clock.
1: I'm always yours. I'm always here for you.
0: Thank you so much. When you say that, You're such a speaker from the heart that I get chills when you say such nice things and profound things. So thank you for being that way. You're a breath of
1: fresh air. If I didn't mean it, I wouldn't say it.
0: You're WYSIWYG that way. I just called you the name of a very popular editor built in iframe to many text windows. What you see is what you get WYSIWYG. Thanks. He's laughing. It's like a computer science joke.
1: It's a good one too. I like it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Use it freely creativity. According to Rick Rubin's book, we're all coming from the same well. Have you read The Creative Act yet?
1: I have not. I'll put it on my list.
0: Yeah, I think you would dig it. And it reads like more of a spiritual reader than it does a narrative. I'm down for it. Cool. Well, once you read it, let me know any of your thoughts. So Jason, the topic du jour in our format a bit on Clock Talk this year is pulling in current or past board members, to talk about one clock core in depth at a time. And all day today, I just assumed our core was technology. No, no, no. No. And then 10 minutes before the podcast, the podcast producer reminds me for the 11th time. It's business intelligence. That's our core today. You're ready. I'm ready.
1: I'm ready to talk about a lot of pain and sadness, but also... There's so much potential. So yes, I'm ready to get into it.
0: We're going to go in and we're going to do the full cycle and hopefully end up. It's what Rick Rubin would want the song to sound like.
1: Are we going to try to manufacture like a hero's journey out of this? Is this? I uh, think so. I don't think we have to
0: try. I think that you, me, Jay, that's where we operate, JM. So let's hit it. But before we go into business intelligence, thank you for your service to clock these many years on the board. What'd you do? Four years? Five?
1: I think five, five. A little under five. Yeah. That's half a decade of your life. I know. It does not feel that long. And it is service that comes from love because when you go do things with the clock crew, you're mostly hanging out with friends. And the adventure, the journey, it really is a, an experience of, I want to go after righteous problems with these people because they make the journey fun.
0: I love that. I didn't have to ask you for a reflection. You just gave it. Five years, clock is really only 10 years old. It's only been an org formally for seven years. So you were a board member most of the time. You know, the definition of innovation is you leave something better than you found it. Give me a sense of like when you walked in, something you observed, And then when you left, how it was different or better. I mean, so much changed. And obviously the size of the org, the global span, the number of members, like aside from just the sheer might of our growth, any
1: observations? So a few observations. It feels like, and this is going to be a lot of feels as much as thinks, but it feels like the scope and the scale of what people in our Community are going after has gotten much bigger. So that is one thing that feels different. So when I arrived, it felt like in many instances, a lot of the conversations I was having were about point problems. There's a thing, like a system that needs to be brought online, or there's like a broken thing. And as I leave the board, it feels like the conversations are starting to migrate into there is a business challenge that needs to be addressed. And the people in our community are expected to assemble all of the pieces to go after that. And that feels like a different set of expectations for what an operations person is supposed to do. Because so many of us grew up focused on making a thing work. And then apparently we could fix problems, make things better. And increasingly, I feel like we're being put into situations where it's like, There's a system that needs to be upgraded and you need to figure out how to make all these pieces better in harmony and simultaneously.
0: Yeah. And these systems, as you know very well, they don't live in a silo of just one front door, one back door, one loading dock. They have to come into an ecosystem of many disparate technologies and systems. And to get all of that to really work in concert, we're becoming orchestrators before maybe we were tacticians is sort of what you were describing, like oh, clinically find the problem, solve it, whoosh, take a breath of fresh air, but now it's orchestration.
1: I think that's a perfect analogy because it really does express what you have to do, which is you have to get a bunch of different pieces to play together in tempo, in harmony, You need one section to not be too loud and like try to overpower the other. And let's be honest, those brass folks, like they got ego. So how are you going to keep them feeling good about themselves without blowing out the woodwinds? And so I think you're offering a really elegant analogy for what it feels like the expectations and the roles are starting to look like in our space.
0: Talking about business intelligence, let's get into it, Jason. Let's get into it. God, there's so much here. And this is one of these pillars or clock cores that I think we've slept on, business intelligence is the core or the practice of measuring things, creating data, turning data into something, some kind of meaningful measurement for people to make decisions from. And maybe the biz intelligence part is the visualization of or the building creation of the dashboards, the graphs, the charts, the numbers and the metrics for said people to make decisions. What do you think? Is that a good on-the-fly definition or anything to add to
1: that? I like it. And if anybody stops listening, Jen just said the most important thing that you should take away from what BI is all about, which is how are you helping people make better decisions? All the work ultimately flows into how are you going to orient yourself How are you going to interpret what is happening? How are you going to see patterns? Ultimately, how do you predict? But it is about helping people make decisions. And one of the biggest challenges I see is when people undertake BI as a vanity exercise, where they're literally like, that team over there has a shiny dashboard and I need one too. And when people can't articulate what the problems are that they think they're going to solve with BI investments, you should be very skeptical and concerned because there's a very good chance that what you're doing is you're walking down a path where somebody saw, well, the Johnsons over there have a dashboard. And so for me to feel like I'm a primary participant in this here system, I need a dashboard too. I can't actually tell you what problems I'm going to solve. I can't really tell you what I'm going to do with this, but I need one of those. And so that would be, I'd say, a pretty big red flag in your BI journey when you get that kind of signal.
0: I think the vanity exercise or the copy paste of keeping up with the Joneses, they have something I want it. I think we do that sometimes in our industry, intra ourselves. Every time I see an email or a thread that's like, what should you put on your GC dashboard? I just hit delete. These businesses are sometimes so different that I don't know that we could even copy paste them across the industry. But I'm, as you know, quite a skeptic. I'm just going to say it. I do not have a GC or CLO dashboard. Didn't have one at Spotify. We had one at Cisco. And let me tell you who the BI data monkeys were. It was me and it was Farhad crunching everything manually out of a bunch of tools into those proprietary metrics and what a pain in the butt. But okay, it worked. What are your thoughts on the monolithic GC BI tool or dashboard? Real or hype?
1: This is so perfect. Thank you. I love this so much. So let's talk about why it is basically a weird thing that probably shouldn't exist. So let's talk about what a dashboard is. I'm going to start off with some silly questions. Jen, do you have a car, like an automobile? I do. And it has probably some kind of control thing in front of you that gives you some kind of information about the car, right? It does. It has a dashboard, right? Yeah. And roughly, what are the number of things on that control thing that you actually look at to drive the
0: car? First of all, I never look at the dashboard because I'm busy focused on the road ahead. And so I only look when there's a hazard or an alarm basically. And it's when your gas tank is low. So it prompts the action. And just this week, I got a red one that said battery low. I'm like, what? I just put a battery in this ridiculous car. But the car likes to act up when I leave Los Angeles for a month. It gets a mood I've learned all of our appliances have moods. And when I come back from the other coast, they throw a tantrum at me and they flicker all the red lights on. So battery low. And I'll look at the speed if I am on a freeway in California because man, I had to go to a California court in Oxnard once because I was speeding because I wasn't paying attention.
1: So does your car have a navigation system? It does. Do you use it? I do. Because
0: I'm living in a city, I still don't know my way around. Yeah.
1: Right. So my observation, by the way, I'm completely aligned with you. So how much effectively resource do I have left in this thing? Roughly how fast am I going so I don't get myself in trouble with the constable? The most useful element I find in the kind of information systems in my car are the navigation system when it tells me, You are going to go this way, but now there's something that is going to slow you down or stop you and you should go this other way. Yes, I would agree with that. So my point on this is many dashboards are distracting. They have too much information and what they end up being is the cognitive overload. So for you to go to a dashboard and try to contextualize what this is telling you, and turn that into an actionable insight is often so expensive that people won't. So one of the things that is interesting about dashboards is people don't embrace that. And By and large, a dashboard is appropriate as a repeat player experts tool. So if you are somebody who has a process that you are overseeing or something like that, a dashboard that you have repeat play and you have full contextual understanding of what it's telling you, what it means, that's very useful. But for most operators who are in an itinerant situation, a dashboard is too cognitively overwhelming to be truly useful. So to your point of the GC dashboard, I think the temptation that people have, because you can put everything on the dashboard, is to load up these things, load them up with all kinds of features and information. And then what you do is, You end up having to go explain what everything means to that person. And at that point, why did we have the dashboard when you're just going to actually contextualize and explain Like, Here's what's actually going on.
0: Yes. Or in the case of part of my career at Cisco, the amount of time cycles spent producing the data and finessing it to feed it up into the dashboard was maybe outsized and Compared to the value the GC was getting, he only really wanted two or three numbers around deal cycle times and using that divisional math against revenue to say to the COO, Hey, we just shaved three weeks off the sales cycle. Go have your sales teams go sell that much more or whatever. And they loved it. That was it.
1: You just nailed it again, but you nailed it. I think this is what operations people sometimes lose sight of. And I know I have. So I'm a total nerd. I love getting in the details of things and I can't help myself. But when you look at the job to be done of a general counsel, what are they really doing? What they're doing is they're setting, there's horizon scanning, they're setting strategy, they're creating incentives for people to drive certain outcomes, and they're allocating resources. And so if you look at the control set, that they're most interested in, it operates in the aggregates that you just described because that's what they need to actually do what they're going to do. The people who ladder down closer to a specific process, they might need more detail because they're the ones responsible for keeping that process in control. But if you show up to your GC with something that basically makes them feel not smart, then that is often not a recipe for success. And so the thing that I would encourage people to be very curious about is when you're creating any kind of reporting or output tool, think about the altitude that the person that you're trying to feed insights and information to, like literally like what are the levers that they pull to do their job and think about how you can start aggregating or providing the detail level that actually is native for them. So, that they're not having to translate what comes out of whatever you're producing into their own frame. So
0: well said. And it's so weird because I think dashboards are some of the most powerful tools you can put around some of these processes and systems or the financial management of. But I don't think we should rush to do them. I think you have to get in, get dirty for a while, make sure there are meaningful
1: workflows or systems that produce. Data. Whoa whoa whoa, 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 whoa! That's crazy talk. You said something else that's incredibly trenchant. I was going to talk about all the pain, and this is where the pain comes from. So, one of the reasons that people who are sent on BI projects in our space have such a rough time is, in many instances, the business space within legal that you're being asked to go help, they don't have stuff to count because they don't have the underlying processes that you just described. When you go to them and you're like. Hey, so we want to do like a reporting project or we want to try to understand. You're like, okay, so tell me, like, what are your units? What are your problems? And they're like, oh, well, everything we do is different.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, call me in three years after you've developed your workflows with your team. Going back to an earlier point, you said dashboards are really appropriate for a repeat player experts tool. And an example of that, I'd love to hear an example from your world, an example of my world is we're running a contract operations function that helps streamline the last mile of the contract and make sure it gets to its storage place and gets tagged appropriately all in time. And we have dashboards galore on that. So we can answer all those questions quickly. What's contract volume for this team, this month, this slice, 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 slice. And we produce these metrics often As part of our strategy doc, our wins announcements showing how we're executing and having impact. No one's looking at those. People will read our wins or the memos we write announcing what's happening, progress reports, but I'm not making them suffer through dashboards. And I love that example. And it's okay if we're dashboarding for us first around the opsification of a bunch of legal stuff.
1: That's right. So... The dashboards that are probably easiest to produce that you might get broadest adoption on are really things like outside council spend and budget. So those are situations where you can probably abstract to a common kind of view that is generalizable enough that you can get repeat play on that horizontally across your department. And yes, people want their own kind of weird thing, but That is one of those things where, if you were going to start on a project that you might be able to reuse horizontally, that's something that I'd say people should really think about. And at a certain point, maybe we should talk about horizontal and vertical. I have some thoughts on that, but let's bend a little bit. So, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and I want to give people one way to think about really your BI journey in your investment. So, let's imagine that there's two ways to look at this one is vertical. And by that, I mean, there's a specific kind of business unit or function or practice or what have you. But there's a vertical thing. And the maturity progress might look something like, I don't care about data at all. And that's where it starts. And then it gets to, okay, I actually am interested in data. And then, they, okay, so all right, good. They do some research and they understand, look, this is what I want to collect and why. These are the problems I want to solve. And so then they make some investments. And they actually start collecting data and generating reports. So, okay, that's good. And then eventually it moves to a place where I have enough longitudinal experience and enough kind of different elements that I can start seeing patterns and correlations. I'm like, oh, I can start kind of moving to the place where I get to predictions. So that is like a vertical kind of maturation process that you may see again and again. And the thing that goes back to the systems accountabilities that you and I were talking about is, Operations folks should increasingly expect that they're also going to have a horizontal accountability. And that might look something like this. I do not care who in this place is collecting what. So that would be like the zero uh, version. So eventually somebody's like, huh, I don't know who's collecting what data and doing what with it. So, yeah, I'm curious about that. Okay. And then you get sent on a project where you literally start cataloging and inventorying the verticals and figuring out like, okay, so who is doing what? And then you might start trying to get to the place where you want to start correlating across those verticals. And then you realize, of course, this is very expensive because I have all these parallel silos. So then you go on a project and you're like, okay, I need to start figuring out how to translate across these different silos because I'm getting repeat questions asking for that correlation. And then at some point, somebody will probably have the idea of like, hey, maybe we should start burning down some of this technical debt. So now I want to start bringing legacy and new workloads into a common data framework so I don't have these horrific translation costs. And then eventually they may say like, well, we've done all this work to kind of harmonize the data frameworks. Maybe we should start bringing these into a common technical approach and common technical infrastructure that will ultimately let us take the hosting analysis cost way down. Does it resonate with you as kind of like there's a vertical journey and a horizontal journey? Totally.
0: You are describing so many projects alive and well and sometimes frightening in our work. And the horizontal example is a contract volume dashboard across all verticals of the business. That's a very common one. I've seen at every company I've been at, including my current one. And let me tell you what happened one day, not too long ago someone thought it would be a great idea to reduce some technical debt in the data warehouse. And they took a table that was very important to our big horizontal build and they deprecated a data table. And we didn't know because there's so many alerts inside the company and the systems. And we found out on a Sunday as one of our vertical teams was preparing to present that dashboard to the general counsel. And we got a call on a Sunday and had to do some of that, find two other tables that we knew that table was sort of combining and do a new combine. And thank God for those skill sets and competencies on a team, which are data science and a bit of data engineering combined. And they found it. My miracle workers found it. And everyone lived, the presentation went on. But you just painted a very accurate definition of something
1: I've lived, I bet you've lived, and many of us are living. So you're highlighting why eventually every operations leader ends up being a person who seeks to influence whoever the people are who control the technical infrastructure. Because you end up being downstream and taking these hard dependencies on all these things. And as you start creating systems that have dependencies that get more interwoven and complex... You literally have to start solving for both. Yes, we have fully documented the dependencies and we understand what they are, but you need to have relationships with the people who control the care, feeding, and investment on these things so that when they look at all the stuff they're about to change, they have some empathy because it's the easiest thing in the world to say, like, well, that's legal's thing and they'll be all right. And as weird as it sounds, a lot of the artistry that comes in, ultimately, the bigger jobs that we take on in our space is figuring out who are the people in the org who run some kind of function or infrastructure where if they don't care about you and they don't love you, your life is just going to be constantly putting out fires and incredibly hard. So true. You have to have those relationships
0: and Luckily, in the setup I'm in now, I am very close with the cross functional partner who owns the data warehouse. And then I'm close with the engineering manager who is in the mix on all of this over the products that feed those tables. And so we were able as three groups to come together and go, how can we prevent this from happening again next time? And it was all process prevention. It was, how do we be better people? over our products and data and let people know things more in a more quick or apparent way. They did let us know, but it kind of flew under the
1: radar. 100%, but let's get weird. So the thing that we can do as leaders who have to drive these outcomes, and this is the easiest thing in the world, but we often don't prioritize it, is the people who do a lot of that infrastructure work don't get as much love as they should. They're doing hard, serious work. And it is the easiest thing in the world to shine a light on your partners who are doing this hard work that really matters and tell a story that is very real to the people who control their incentives and their resources about why what they're doing matters so much. And it's very tempting to put that as the last thing on the list But if you put a little bit of effort into shining a light onto how the people who support you make you successful and help explain the business impact that comes from the investments that they're making, it really can help you and your work get prioritized so that when you are trying to put exactly the kind of process change in that you just described, it's the thing that ends up happening earlier in the quarter rather than uh, we'll see when we get to it.
0: Yeah, totally. Tell us about your dashboard journey at Microsoft. First of all, something you just said made me think it's very hard for me, Jen, to be that exec who is out in front acknowledging all of those cross-functional partners, those infra people, nurturing those relationships over on the tech side, and then just swing over here and do it on the finance side. And thank God I have a finance outside council management team that I've staffed. John Elliott, Amanda Ortiz, Fraga, Joe O'Donnell, they're doing that. And the finance side is like their thing because I don't have the time. How do people in our roles have the time and bandwidth to do that level of breadth? That is two different sides of the company and systems, disparate systems. How do you tackle that or how has that been tackled in your purview at Microsoft?
1: You're 100% right. You only have so many hours in the day and really so many thinking cycles. And so ultimately, what I do is I give people a lot of accountability and ownership over things. And what I do is I model the things I'm talking about, which is, look, we take care of our partners. And one of the ways we do that is we proactively recognize them. So whenever I give somebody accountability and ownership of something, I make it clear like, you have seen me do this. You must now do this too. And what people learn very quickly is when you're offering thank you, people don't care about the elevation of your title so much. They'll just be like, oh, well, that's wonderful. And that's how it should be. And the thing that is really interesting is people then very quickly realize is that the person who takes the time to recognize the partners who make them successful, they generate more power they get more influence. So it ends up being a virtuous cycle that is an intrinsic part of when I ask people to take ownership of something, I really want them to own it. And I try to coach them into a space where you will need less of me to drive the outcomes because you're going to generate your own power. So that's how I think about it.
0: I love that. I love that. Empower the people be really giving with the thank yous and the acknowledgements because it goes a long way. It's so true. When I'm working for Clock, I am a thank you machine, Jason. I go to our conferences and events. I work that vendor floor and I walk around and I say a heartfelt thank you for putting your skin in the game, money in the event. You are creating this event with us. It goes a long way. It really feeds and helps feed the ecosystem and the giving and Marketplace that we get to all play in. Absolutely. I think people are going to dig what we're saying. I hope you guys do. And here are the examples. We've swatted down the idea of a checklist GC dashboard. That's not a starting point, but maybe you get there over time. When your GC and comes and asks the question enough, if it's quantifiable and repeatable and automatically settable in a dashboard. Sure, maybe you build an iterative couple of views. That came at a later point in the GC dashboarding I've seen.
1: Let's talk a little bit about what the practical journey looks like for us internally. So I'm going to talk about stuff that Microsoft makes because that's what we use. Everything I'm going to talk about, there's some other analog. And by the way, as a starting place, use what you got. None of them are better than the other. No. So prove need and demand before you go buy new stuff, if you already have a thing. And then after you bump into the constraints to like, hey, I need more stuff, go buy more stuff, but really get to your MVP first with what you got before adding more technical debt in your stack. So our journeys often start off with a SharePoint list. So for people who have not played around with SharePoint, it is a Swiss army knife of all kinds of things. It can do file storage, it can do workflows, and it has this very flexible data structure type called a list, which is mutable and you can do all kinds of crazy things with it. And what we end up doing is building small workflows using a combination typically of a SharePoint list and Power Automate. And that is a common starting place for us of taking some kind of small workflow and we prototype it with Power Automate. And then we start having some form of structured data in a SharePoint list. And you can plug a SharePoint list as a data source directly into Power BI, or you can use Excel or whatever you want. But Power BI lets our people very quickly spin up visualizations. It keeps getting so smart, they're (laughs) pumping all kinds of AI stuff into it to make it easier. But typically, the evolution looks like start off with something like that, and then start running into the limitations because I either have so much data, like so much tabular data, or I need internal structures which are not supported by the list structure, or I need to start correlating this thing with something over there. And then what happens is we will typically move into a more advanced posture where we're using something like SQL Azure or Synapse or whatever. Like We've got all these kinds of things. But basically, you then upgrade into something that gets a little bit more capable. And then when people start saying like, well... I want to start running like serious analysis workloads or I want to start running data science. I want to start doing like serious regressions and I want to build models. That's when we move into a data lake posture and that supports typically a whole bunch of flexible data types. So you can go structure, tabular, with relational elements, you can go document, DB, all the things and it lets you go crazy. But we typically do have that pattern of kind of maturing through those rungs. It is honestly, like people love to run to the end. And if you have a very clear vision of what you need and why it needs all those capabilities and powers, then it can make sense to do that. But the thing that I have observed is you are typically better off starting people off with the simplest thing necessary to get the job done and basically have people's demands drive you into the more expensive technical postures rather than running to the most complicated thing. Because Again, like one of the things that has happened many times for us is we've made an expensive investment in a dashboard or a workflow or any of these kind of pieces of technical infrastructure. And then there wasn't usage. There was not actual demand. And so then we have this expensive thing that sits on the shelf and we're very sad. Now, we reuse things and we learn from them, but we would be less sad. We're always less sad when people actually use this stuff. You were asking, like, really, like, where is the journey for Microsoft? So that was the classic pattern that we see. And I will note that one of my colleagues, Chris Nelson, he has a team that has built some really amazing stuff where now what they have is really robust data infrastructure. They've got data scientists doing really cool stuff on top of it. And they're at the place where they can start doing cutting edge, state of the art stuff. But it took them years of really pulling themselves through that maturation process And those were hard yards. Like it was not easy. And Chris is one of those leaders who had the fortitude to really see it through. The other person I'll mention who has done just epic, epic work on this is Tom Morrison. He is such an incredible data nerd. And if I was looking for somebody to really help me really learn the journey, compared to Tom, I'm a dilettante. He's one of those people who is just an epic level Architect for making those kinds of journeys at massive scale. But he would tell you, like, you have to work your way up that maturity curve. And if you try to move faster than demand and real need exists, it gets unstable real fast and sadness and resource gets wasted.
0: What would you peg as the timeframes around some of those? I know when I started at Netflix and started my cross functionals with data science, we very quickly realized. We're very early on this maturity journey. And I said, BRB, in three years, I'm going to be back and I'm going to need your data science, brain resources and more context from what you guys know under the hood. But we're just getting started here and had to start kind of one crude little dashboard at a time. And it went so far with us that we went and got a different BI tool because the instance of the BI tool that was at the company at the time I couldn't put that in front of lawyers. It was too technical because data science is cooking with that one. And they have a front end engineer and a back end and they're building a UI over the top. But we don't have that full stack of data science and people in my team. So I was like, I need a clean window that a lawyer can log into simply and like touch on their graphs and on their dashboard. So we went with something else, but one day when it matures more, I'm pretty sure it's all going to converge back together.
1: Yeah. Here's my loose prediction on this, and predictions are always wrong, but maybe they give you some interesting direction. Again, you nailed it, which is your end users do not want a crazy dashboard experience. What they want is an answer to their question. And increasingly, whats what you're going to get are technologies that if you have done a good job of curating your data and bringing it into a common frame, people will increasingly be able to ask questions and get those answered directly out of the data in really either close to or native in the tools they're already working in. I have seen these things in existence. They are, in some instances, they're already here. And so I'm not going to say where to go get them. And I think that's probably a more humane way of asking people (laughs) to consume data, which is you're already in whatever your construction tool is. You're already in the place we already work. Let's get your questions answered there. But here's the dirty part of this that nobody wants to talk about. Somebody still has to curate the data and collect it and bring it into a place and clean it up. So we want to think that like these magic robots are coming that are going to take our messy lack of process. And turn that into some kind of cognizable thing. Nope. Operations experts are going to need to decompose the things we do, turn those into the useful elements, collect them somewhere so that you can aggregate them and read over them. But that work is going to continue for a while. But that path that you just talked about of going from I have some data to I can do really cool stuff with it, that Journey is going to get converged because the AI experiences that are waking up are going to radically accelerate that process.
0: They will radically accelerate us skipping through and cleaning and calling data. However, the amount of data is radically multiplying every day, every month, every year. There's so much data that, trust me, everyone, there's going to be so much messy data that keeps us all gainfully employed for the next 10 years as we figure out all the AI shortcuts. To get there, Jason, I'm having so much fun with you journeying across the galaxy. We're probably way over time, and our producers, like, look, you guys, it's Friday, stop galaxy gliding. But I think you nailed so many great practical tips here, which is do not copy paste, do not do vanity BIing business intelligence dashboards. This is my favorite point today start simple and have your dashboard answer a question. That's being asked. Don't worry about it being beautiful. Don't graphic design it. Just answer the question. And when you get those signals back, you can iterate from there and know that this is a journey. Like all things, all these cores, they need time foundational, mature, and to get to advanced. So give time, everyone. This is my theme of the week on my podcast with Mary. I was like, this stuff takes a long time. Be patient. Amen. Amen godspeed jason great to see you we miss you at clock thanks for coming back and talking on clock talk today
1: i'm always available
0: thank you jason for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your thoughts catch this and other episodes of clock talk wherever you listen to podcasts thanks for listening until next time